This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're assessing the dystopian threats of the Aerodrome by Rex Warner. Writer and academic Joseph Darlington guides us through Warner's politics, his representations of England, and whether or not this novel is truly a dystopia. The Aerodrome is set in a nameless but idyllic rural village, where the inhabitants live rough but blameless lives, attending church, frequenting the pub, and enjoying village fates. But on a hill overlooking the village, a mysterious militaristic aerodrome has been constructed and threatens to overwhelm the entire countryside. Our hero, Roy, disillusioned with village life, attempts to resist the lure of the air vice-marshal, a charismatic leader who promises order and excitement. Rex Warner was born in Birmingham in 1905 and was a renowned classicist, writer, poet and translator. He attended Wadham College, Oxford, where he became friends with W.H. Auden, Stephen Spender and Cecil Day-Lewis. During the 1930s, he developed strong anti-fascist beliefs, something reflected in his first three novels, The Wild Goose Chase, The Professor and The Aerodrome. He wrote seven further novels, three books of poetry and many volumes of non-fiction, including translations from ancient Greek and Latin. His translation of Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War for Penguin Classics sold over a million copies and is still in print today. He died in 1973. Joseph Darlington is the author of The Experimentalists, published by Bloomsbury, a collective biography of British experimental novelists of the 1960s. He's also the author of the novel The Girl Beneath the Ice, published by Northodox, and the co-editor of the Manchester Review of Books. He can be found on Twitter at Joe underscore Darlow. For all the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned, head to the description of this episode. I'm Graham Foster, and I spoke to Joseph Darlington at the Burgess Foundation in Manchester in May 2023. Joe, welcome to the 99 Novels podcast. Uh, We're here today to talk about The Aerodrome by Rex Warner, and we like to start off our podcasts uh, by asking you when you first discovered the novel and, and what you first made of it when you first read it. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. So, yeah, I, I came across this when I was doing my MA. It's one of these books where it's a bit of a forgotten classic, I think. So I don't know if I would ever have stumbled across it if it wasn't for that Salford was taught by Ben Harker on a, a module specifically about 1930s literature, about popular front literature. And so when I read it in the context of the 1930s, I got quite different things out of it than I do today. It really stuck with me, and I reread it a number of times. Um, 
So I, I also write my own fiction, and this thing has sort of been a bit of a curse on me for a while, in that there's a lot of... Uh, well, I wrote a whole book which was sort of based on it, but where it was a scout troop that went rogue. Uh, that didn't see the light of day because it wasn't very good. Um, there was one called Spare the Glass Picnic, which is based on the one scene with Slazinger the Bull in here that you may recall, um, which I self-published in the end. Um, so, yeah, it kind of stayed in my imagination for a long time and it's probably still there. This is sort of a, a speculative question, but, but why do you think Burgess chose the aerodrome for, for his list and, and what was its reputation in 1984? Well, it's an interesting question. I think by 1984, it had sort of its time had come and gone. It was one of these novels that came out in wartime. Um, there's an excellent book called The Mus Mushroom Jungle, which is about kind of the difficulties of bringing out literature in wartime, especially with paper rationing. There's some good stories about publishers had to, they would be breaking into butter factories to steal the paper that they wrapped butter in. Um, and so when Burgess himself writes about it in uh, 99 novels, he's talking about the fact that he was a bit starved for literature himself, and he found a copy of it on um, a ship, I believe, either going out or coming back from uh, Gibraltar. Yeah, I think it might have been coming back from Gibraltar. Yeah, so it's... Um, so that's kind of, I suppose, where he finds it. And I think there's a lot in this novel that can be read through a particular lens, which is very Burgessian. So I've got a quote out from 99 novels here where um, Burgess describes the, the message, the overall message of the aerodrome as that original sin is to be cast out. There is to be no more muddle and irrationality. The future is to be clean, healthy, disciplined, totalitarian. That's the kind of the baddies message, I suppose. And that reminded me a lot of another book that we'll be very familiar with, one of Burgess's own. Um, there's a poster of it just over there, Clockwork Orange. Um, so I think for Burgess, the appeal is, is quite obvious. It's this kind of message of original sin and its concomitant, I suppose, Christian values versus this new world of rationality, which lacks the sympathy of... of um, of the older ways of thinking. Um, in terms of 1984, by that point, uh, Warner has sort of his moment as quite well known as an associate of the 1930s communist circle, that's ended. His novels are probably mostly out of print then, I would speculate, um, but he's very, very well known as a classicist. So his uh, translation of Thucydides uh, Peloponnesian War is to this day it remains the Penguin Classics chosen translation of it. It sold a million copies when it came out and if you go to Amazon right now you'll see that it's his version that's just been come out, come out under the new covers that they've done. Um, so it's likely that I think Warner to the, the student audience picking up 99 novels probably would have appeared more as like oh I know him from the translations that he's done rather I didn't know he was a novelist that might be the effect. Yeah, and, and you, you mentioned sort of Burgess's focus on original sin, and I, I think Burgess, when it comes to dystopia, Burgess can't sort of extricate himself from his Catholic upbringing. If you look at A Clockwork Orange, it's a really Catholic novel in some ways, and, and The Wanting Seed, his other 1962 dystopia, is, is certainly talking about original sin and uh, th those sort of Catholic themes in there. But speaking about dystopia, would you categorise this novel as a dystopia? And, and how does it fit with that description? It's an, it's an awkward one to fit under that label, isn't it? I think if you, were, if you put together a reading list of dystopias, this one would stand out a little. Um, I think 
it helps that the good guys win in the end, and so a lot of dystopias leave you on a kind of warning of, you know, this is how bad it could be and end in a tragedy, and this isn't a tragedy, it sort of has a happy resolution. Um, but it is still set in a kind of no place. It doesn't feel like a future world, it feels more like a timeless world, um, a sort of England that is forever England, and a sort of World War II resonances whilst also perhaps being the myth of World War II. Interestingly, it was written in the 40s when the war hadn't become quite as mythologised because it was still obviously going on. But Yeah, I think it was published in 1942. So Yeah, right in the middle of things. So just after the Battle of Britain when, I guess, the celebration of the pilots would be at its, at its peak. Um, but it still feels kind of like this timeless no place of the imagining of what the kind of the heroic pilots and sort of the England of green fields and pastures... Um, and so it is, I think, working on that level, it is allegorical, absolutely. It's symbolical. Um, but whether it fits with dystopia as we understand it, it's probably an outlier, I'd think. Yeah, I, I think one, one thing you said there, that the good guys win in the end, is kind of true. But also, the, good, the supposed good guys are so seduced by fascism in, in the novel that their goodness is complicated by, by the, the, this sort of seduction that goes on, I think. Definitely, yeah. I think that it's, in fact, yeah, it was oversimplifying, I suppose, in, in that the person who, the side that clearly the author sides with wins in the end. But in fact, if we take goodness to mean the desire to act correctly, I suppose that is on the side of the people in the aerodrome, whereas the people of the village who represent original sin, they are very much not good in any traditional sense. But I suppose the message of, of the thing is that it's much better to be messy and complicated and human than to be rigorously rational, good and inhuman. Yeah, I think that's a very Burgessian uh, sort of outlook. Uh, you know, imperfection is better than perfection in, in terms of being a human being, I suppose. Following on for that, so it's set in a nameless village location, which is about the most English village you can get without <laughs> saying it's an English village. Um, so how much do you think this novel is about England, about, about the society of England? Because the inhabitants of the village are not bucolic individuals. The village is described as quite bucolic, but the, the inhabitants of the village, they're all, there's, there's incest, there's you know, there's sex everywhere. There's, you know, all sorts of... of diff they're all drunk as well. Oh, all the time. Yeah. yeah. So um, what, what do you think this novel is saying about England generally and maybe uh, about traditional rural communities more specifically? And, and how is that contrasted with how Warner describes the aerodrome? Well, the aerodrome is the kind of ultimate crisp, clean, sterile ordered environment it's the kind of the ideal totalitarian state um whereas yeah the i think the way that it uses england is really fascinating in that it sort of calls back to all those victorian novels where people look back with fond memories of a time pre-industrialization it reminds me a little bit of thomas hardy's mayor of casterbridge where you've got the sort of farfray the um industrialist coming in and changing this town and dragging them away from their timeless kind of England. Um, but the kind of Victorian rose-tinted spectacles have come firmly off on this one, haven't they? You've got sort of, yeah, all of the, the sins of the flesh. Um, 
it's also tying into, I think, a particularly English notion of, of I guess, small C conservative values, that English common sense and tradition triumphs. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of Edmund Burke, it's a kind of uh, continental and specifically French rationalism, the, the idea that the English constitution has sort of sedimented itself over thousands of years of accidents, whereas um, that's very antithetical to this notion that you can design your society and your government and your behavior from scratch. Um, there's a particular Burke quote, actually, that I thought I'd dr drag out um, that re reminded me of this in a way. There's a great one in uh, his Reflections on the Revolutions in France where he uh, is talking about the intellectuals of England versus the English people. And he's got a scene, an English field, uh, where because half a dozen grasshoppers under a fern make the field ring with their unfortunate chink, whilst thousands of great cattle reposed beneath the shadow of the British oak chew the cud and are silent, pray do not imagine that those who make the noise are the only inhabitants of the field. Which I particularly like because it makes cows very noble and humans <laughs> not so much. We become like the cattle. Um, and I think very much these, these uh, as Warner puts it at the end of the novel, where he says, uh, clean it was and most intricate, fiercer than tigers, wonderful and infinitely forgiving. It's this idea of, of a sinful but forgiving, merciful sort of England of, of small communities and rural things. So it's, there still is a lot of kind of rose-tinted glasses, but not quite... It's not the innocence that makes it idyllic. It's, it's the sense of sin and the willingness to forgive that sin, I suppose. The, the village scenes, for me, reminded me of the Mortmere stories by Edward Upward. Mm. Um, and I, I know that Rex Warner was part of the, the sort of communist circle in Oxford. And so that, that circle also included, at different times, people like W.H. Auden, Edward Upward... Um, Spender, probably Stephen Spender, probably. So, do you see the sort of work in the aerodrome as almost a sort of collaborative piece with the, his sort of colleagues in that sort of communist society? It's an interesting idea. I think definitely there is that sense of a particular English view of Marxism that sort of is a, antithetical to a lot of the Marxist criticism that you get on the continent, and certainly that you get out of established socialist states, um, like Russia in particular, ties it to sort of a Raymond Williams-ish view of England naturally progressing towards a socialist state, something that became increasingly difficult, I think, for, for Warner to, to accept. He's got two earlier novels that are particularly relevant, I think, where the, the Wild Goose Chase, which is sort of madcap satirical, feels very agitprop. And then he's got one that's much more Kafkaesque, uh, The Professor, which, like this one, is set in England, but it doesn't say. That one's sort of set in Nazi Germany, but doesn't tell you. But that's about a professor deciding, is he going to become political now that he's in this situation that's forcing him to and to make tough decisions? And this book was written in the aftermath of the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So uh, you've got Stalin, who a lot of that circle had put their faith in, essentially joining hands with Hitler. And the kind of, it was much more difficult to turn a blind eye to the totalitarianism of Stalinism at that point. And so I think the aerodrome comes as an interesting moment where the kind of underlying 
sort of Christian values that have been inspiring that supposedly communist movement. Because Auden, you know, saying we should love each other or die, um, it's not a particularly Marxist message. It's got a lot more to do with, with you know, Jesus' message. Um, those are revealing themselves in this book, I think. And so I, th I think, although it has this intention of, of moving towards socialism, it's also at this perfect pivot point where the existing kind of ideologies of socialism and the cause of socialism are very conflicted in Warner's head. And so we get a novel that's much more ambiguous and a lot more allegorical than out-and-out -out propaganda, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that's, that's reflected in the, in the politics of, of both the aerodrome and the village. Mm. Um, there doesn't seem to be an overarching... Certainly in the village, there doesn't seem to be an overarching philosophy mm. that the inhabitants are living by. And the aerodrome's fascism, uh, I suppose... Is, is quite softly described. You have to sort of work quite hard to, to see the downsides of, of the, the aerodrome um, because I think Warner intentionally sort of muddies it through his main character, Roy, who is, who is seduced by the aerodrome. Um, so how do you think his own politics are, are represented within the two communities of the novel? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult to speculate in terms of, of Warner directly, but I certainly think that you're right. There's, there's almost a... It reminds me a bit of um, Brave New World in that clearly the author, author has given both sides the strongest... They've embedded their own emotions and made the strongest argument they can for both sides because the aerodrome is appealing, it's got order... All the women in the village seem to like the men who go to the aerodrome, and it's certainly the case for Roy and, and his, his, well, his girlfriend becomes his wife as a result of him going there. And yet in the village, there's sort of a sympatheticness about it in that they are underdogs. They're, they're more, I guess, more human. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a difficult one because you then, you, don't, you never have any moment in the novel in which there is a kind of 1984-style systematic lying or torture scenes or mass death there's no moment where you as a reader are forced to encounter the fact that this totalitarianism is you know the worst brutality that you could imagine um it leaves it much more open i think it's a lot more trusting in the audience as well as a result of that that you need to investigate what is it in all of us that can be attracted to the idea of order and of the messiness of life being something that you kind of want to clean up and do away with. And that's, that's something that I think we, we all have it in us, and certainly Warner has, has found that within himself and, and brought that to life with the aerodrome. I, I certainly think that's true, and, and the character of the air vice marshal um, is a sort of charismatic and commanding figure who uh, you can see that well, you start to learn that his his intentions might not be as as uh, uh, pure as the aerodrome's propaganda might mm. might uh, might signify. But you know, when you're you're reading the novel, you can sort of understand how all it takes is for a charismatic leading figure to seduce people that that perhaps like Roy, when we meet him in the novel, is drunk. Uh, he's asleep in a field. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't have m many prospects and suddenly the aerodrome appears 
and the air vice marshal sort of seduces him into thinking that the aerodrome is his path to fortune, to heroism, to all those sort of words that are used in, in propaganda, even now, you know. It goes back, for me, to the novel's subtitle, which is a love story. The examples of, of romantic love in the novel are so sort of corrupted, they're, they're uh, incestuous, it's unwanted pregnancy, um, deceit and betrayal, all, all the sort of bad stuff you would associate with romantic love Rex Warner puts in there. Mm. Um, what do you think Warner is trying to say with the subtitle? Are there other types of love in the novel? This is a really interesting question. I think it's, yeah, he's, he, it's certainly not... If you bought it on the strength of it being called a love story, you'd be quite upset, I think. You couldn't make a good romantic comedy out of it. When I reread it, I had that in mind because I was trying to think, what is love meaning in this? There's, there's a good quotation at the start that seems to sort of lead your way into it where the rector in that first chapter is revealing that his seeming son Roy has actually been adopted... Um, and the uh, flight lieutenant is sort of asking him, well, why did you bring him in? Why did you adopt him yourself? Why didn't you send him off to an orphanage? And he says, well, if you want my authority for the care I have taken of him, it is love, sir, justice, sir, and pity. Um, to which the flight lieutenant springs to his feet um, and says, justice, pity, oh, very good indeed, sir, and then runs out of the room. So you've kind of got the, the airman who see, sees this love, justice, and pity as being rather silly, old-fashioned words because he's an active sort of man who's driven by will um, and strength, although later on that, kind of, that particular character gives way to, these, uh, to his more human side, whereas the rector, um, whose voice we hear repeated in Roy's head throughout as the kind of countervailing force to... Um, to the propaganda of the aerodrome is is very much dealing in this idea of love in in the Christian sense being a rector um, but also I think partly it's it's this passive sense of love loving the universe love as a kind of pacifistic um, humbling notion um, and as a result that you can see how it's very tough to live up to those values because they're values that tend against action and against the kind of things, particularly that Roy is a young man out to prove himself, out to, to win the heart of his fair lady. Um, those are all going to be stumbling blocks in his way, whereas the propaganda of the aerodrome, which is about will and strength and vigour and, and orderliness... Um, in fact, there is another bit where there's a lecture from the Air Vice Marshal in which he... Uh, if I can seek it out here... Um, he sort of complains of the inevitability of, of sexual partnership <laughs> as if it's this kind of unfortunate thing that we have to go through. Um, and uh, the complete self-mastery and independence at which we aim can be endangered in more subtle ways than uh, love. In the process of falling in love, you will often find that one of the two persons concerned will, as it is usually expressed, give himself or herself to the other. He or she will find a perverse pleasure in resigning force of impulse, will and judgment to the caprice, the passion or the deliberate calculation of the partner. That is, in fact, the normal thing. And you must be certain that you are never the giver, but always the receiver. Uh, though you may often pretend to give yourself and will derive an additional pleasure very often from the pretense. So he's basically 
in his new willful rational world, love is kind of to be engaged with as, as a tactical pursuit. <laughs> that speech by the Air Vice Marshal is quite ironic because he is expecting the sort of recruits to give themselves completely to him. Mm. And the sort of... Uh, the, the way the recruits react to the to their position in the aerodrome at first at least is 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 it seduction and love it's uh you know um roy certainly uh begins to sort of love his place in in the aerodrome and indeed love the air vice marshal the air vice marshal is his sort of leading light and he gets the coveted job as sort of secretary for the, the air vice marshal and he's sort of really happy that to spend time in his presence and that sort of thing. So, you know, love is, is a strange thing. And the, the rector saying love, justice and pity, um, it turns out the rector's a murderer. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's co always complicated. It is. There's... I think there's a lot in there as well of, uh, although he's not directly in the circle, uh, Leonard Wolfe is, is writing a lot at this time. He brings out a book about fascism called Quack Quack, um, which is kind of a Freudian analysis of the appeal of dictators. And I can't help but see a lot of Freudian undertones in these things, whether uh, Warner intended them or not, because he might be bringing that from a classical kind of position where there's always a sort of sense of... of sexual desire and unconscious drives being on uh, there and kind of pulling society apart but certainly i think that there is a, is always a, a nudge nudge wink wink about whenever someone tries to make a statement there's a, yeah they are undermined there is always a hypocrisy there's always a sort of muddiness to it talking about some of the influences of the aerodrome um burgess seems to identify Kafka as a major influence on, on uh, Rex Warner, with this novel in particular. So Burgess in 1982 wrote an introduction to the aerodrome and basically a large part of that introduction is how Kafka has in, influenced, uh, influenced the novel. Um, do you think that's a supportable take on this novel and, and how do you think Kafka's work is apparent in, in the novel? I think looking at Warner's oeuvre and in general you can certainly see Kafka as a big influence and he personally I think reviewed Kafka and was was a big fan of Kafka but the the, the sense of Kafka-esque fits a lot more with the previous novel the um the professor which lifts a lot from the trial and and things like that in America um if you were going to compare War, Warner's aerodrome to Kafka you'd probably compare it to the castle which at least is set in a unnamed village in which there is a castle on a hill where there's this all-powerful figure. Um, but I don't think that it's the strongest sort of connection. I think from Kafka, he's certainly gained this sim symbolist way of writing. He's got this fascinating way of writing where everything simultaneously seems to be itself but also something else being signified behind it that's perhaps more important than what the thing is Slazinger the bull um, who goes on a sort of wild tearaway ride through the village um, is certainly much more a kind of allegory of, of sort of hidden desires and things like that than it is a, a real bull it doesn't act much like a real bull and a lot of the conversations the way that people act in there don't, don't feel 100% natural um, I would see a symbolist writer like uh, de Gaumont 
the French writer being a much closer parallel. Um, but then I suppose that the French symbolists have a big impact on the art scene, which through the Vienna Secession, you know, if you ever go to Prague, it's just full of that Vienna Secession art, which is highly symbolist. Um, and so Kafka is working within this wider remit. So certainly it's, it's not... It's not that Kafka isn't in it. I just think that maybe that broader set of inspirations that lead to Kafka's work are also now making themselves shown in Warner's work. I think I'd like to pick up on something you just said uh, about the characters, um, animal and human, in, mm. the, in the, the novel, not acting in the way that you would expect them to act. Um, I think that's true. And there's one incident quite near the beginning of the novel where um, the flight lieutenant is giving a machine gun demonstration at the village fair and accidentally shoots the rector in the face <laughs> um, yeah. and it you know in a in a, a a different novel there would be suspicions did he do it deliberately you know what was the the reason behind this sort of manslaughter um in this novel everyone just seems to go, oh, well, it was an accident, <laughs> and get on with their lives. Mm. I, I mean, why do you think these sort of major events, you know, the bull being one of them, um, why do you think they're sort of glossed over in, 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 in a different novel they will be inciting events, whereas they are kind of inciting events, but they incite something, you know, 300 pages down the line. You know, it's... It's a strange way of writing a novel. It is, isn't it? It's as if there's this submerged structure that is sometimes apparent and sometimes isn't. Sometimes these things are, are meant to half reveal a, a message. That's why it's so allegorical, but it doesn't, it's, it doesn't work on a kind of direct metaphor level in the sense of something like something, a simile, a metaphor. You should have something on the other side of these symbols which we can connect it to. And especially if we're thinking of like, oh, well, uh, in the context, the village must be England and the aerodrome must either be Nazi Germany or a kind of lurking fascist threat in England. And it doesn't really work like that at all. It's not like we can tie these two things together. Um, yeah, the mach machine gunning scene is sort of, it almost works as a kind of, if we take a step back and think of the reckless abandon and the kind of modern, modern warfare, um, sort of the damage that it can cause, and the flight lieutenant is particularly, you know, a chaotic character. He's part of the aerodrome, but he's not very orderly. He's sort of, he's always causing chaos wherever he goes. And, um, and so it sort of works with that. If you see him as a force of nature versus the force of nature, which is the rector, is these two forces coming into contact with each other. But that, that second sense of the meaning of it has almost submerged the real, actuality of it. There's a bit as well, a great... The bit where um, Roy decides that he's going to start going to the aerodrome, which is a... Let me see if I can find it here. Um, it's similar, similarly kind of... Um, if you'd written it in a script and sent it into you know, the BBC, they would put a red line through it and just be like... It's, it's a, bit, a bit mechanical, it's a bit clunky, can we round this out? It's... Uh, I think this is just after the air vice marshal has given, uh, has turned up to the funeral of the rector um, and been very brusque about it all. And Roy is feeling very hurt and sort of at this point hates the air vice marshal for his kind of abruptness. Um, and then he goes out um, 
yeah, with Bess and uh, and he's he's talking on and on and on to Bess about how much he doesn't like the air vice marshal. She's not listening because she she thinks the air vice marshal cuts a nice shave. <laughs> and so says, "I see what you mean," she said at last in a slow voice. But all the same, he was marvellous. She turned to me quickly and gripped my arm. Oh, how wonderful it would be, she said, if you were an airman. Um, her smiling face and the vivacity of her voice dissipated at once the feelings of dismay and indignation which had filled me a moment before. I laughed and, stopping in the middle of the field, held her in my arms and kissed her. Would you marry me then, I asked. The idea seemed to her a new and exciting one. She clapped her hands and then laid them on my shoulders, looking into my eyes. Oh, yes, she said, and live at the aerodrome. So, <laughs> so we've got about three paragraphs there, quite short ones, in which the feelings of the, the two characters have taken this big spiral and suddenly we've gone from hating the air vice marshal to moving on the plot to getting to the aerodrome <laughs> and getting married and um but it's it it all makes sense if we if we see these things as you know bess is is unswerving in her devotion to this image of military power i suppose of power as this this thing to admire um where roy is a directionless figure who is so easily swayed that in two sentences he's given up hating the air vice marshal now he's going to give his whole life to the aerodrome um yeah it's it's fascinating it makes the book very kind of unique i think yeah uh, i think it is unique and i i i think anyone going in thinking this is going to be a sort of gritty dystopian thriller may well be disappointed because it is all subtle it is all sort of you know the plot is is mechanical essentially um you know but it, it's kind of not about the plot it's about all sorts of other things and you know uh you've got to do quite a lot of work to to um to get to the to the sort of core of the novel and that's even before characters start becoming other you, you know they have hidden identities and you know they you know, there's hidden brothers and hidden sisters and <laughs> hidden fathers. And it gets a bit Shakespearean. Yeah, and it, it? keeping track of that is just insane. Um, but, you know, we, we've talked quite a lot about the aerodrome itself. Um, but in terms of this as a work of dystopian fiction, which I think you could argue that it, it definitely is. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is one book um, that Burgess talks about when he's writing about the aerodrome um, that we're probably all thinking about when we're talking about the aerodrome, and that's 1984 uh, by Orwell. Um, so Burgess writes that, that these two books sort of bookend the, the Second World War, which is, is kind of true. It, you know, 1942, um, the aerodrome came out. 1949, uh, 1984 came out. Um, but Burgess compares the two novels, uh, I think maybe b because of when he read them in his life. Mm. Um, what do you, to what extent do you think this comparison is fair? And how do the two authors deal with the threat of fascism? Because it's very different, isn't it? It is, it is. It's, um, I think if it wasn't for Burgess's own kind of, yeah, as you say, the time in which he encountered the books and the, the helpful kind of, positioning of them chronologically it wouldn't be a particularly natural comparison i feel like orwell orwell's image of totalitarian socialism comes out of his experiences of 
the 1930s in the Spanish Civil War, at which time Warner is still very much committed to a socialism that sees Russia and Stalin as being the kind of the main driving force of you know, so really existing socialism, as they would have called it at that time. Um, and so I think in 1984, as much as it fits the Stalinism of that era, it's the experiences that led to Orwell's disenchantment are to do with what he saw on the battlefields and behind the scenes in, um, yeah, in Spain. And his image of a friendlier socialism comes out of, again, the 1930s Road to Wigan Pier, in which he's writing against an intellectualized socialism that would, you know, see the ends as justifying the means regardless of what the means are, which is very much, you know, what happens in, in 1984. That's how they end up in the society of Ingsoc that they're in. Um, whereas his socialism is one that's on the streets of Wigan, where you've got you know, people living these horrible lives of dirt and chaos and just constant suffering and not having enough food and, you know, and, or even when they are in work, it's a back-breaking labor. It's an alienated sense of, of, of the smallness of human life. It has that image of a housewife with her hand down a drain in the freezing cold trying to unplug it and, it, and looking in her eyes and seeing that she knew just how gross this is, what she's doing, how unpleasant it is. And that, that's what humanizes Orwell. Um, whereas Warner's image does seem to come out of a, this moment of the, of, the, of the pact between Hitler and Stalin and, and this sort of... Um, because his own view of totalitarianism that he writes about in his essay, Cult of Power, is that you formerly in the Victorian period had Christian values which were about... They were sort of peaceful values, values of, of forgiveness and mercy and, and love... But the Victorian era did not live up to those values. It was a time of heavy industrialization. It was a time of colonialism, imperialism. Um, and so once you enter into the 20th century, he sees D.H. Lawrence as a, as a figure that leads this in. We could equally apply it to Nietzsche, that they're figures who want to flip the whole of the sort of moral system on its head. And so take those former positives of, of love and mercy and, and uh, humility and embracing their opposite. And so it's power, it's strength, it's will, um, it's the active nature rather than the passive nature is what those initial visionaries um, brought into the 20th century. And he sees that combining with a, the social disintegration of the 30s and resulting in, in Hitler, essentially, and Mussolini, that these are figures who embody those values that although it would horrify Nietzsche and certainly D.H. Lawrence to see, to see that totalitarianism, he sees it as being a kind of embodiment of that. But I think with Warner, he can't bring himself to see Stalin as part of the same thing because he has tied his socialism to, um, again, a Raymond williams ideal that this is, this is the kind of the progress of, of English culture is going to naturally tend towards as eventually becoming a socialist state as capitalism and militarism fall apart. So yeah, I think whereas 1984 is setting up uh, an image of this ultimate horror, Warner is as much exploring what's left without, you know, outside of the totalitarianism as well, because a lot of what he's seeing is going back to these, what the village stands for is going back to these old, old values, which 
um, of the 19th century as he saw it, which have also, he's also said, have been systematically kind of undermined. And so all that's left is in the wreckage of the 20th century is, is the statement of old principles and new principles whilst living in hypocrisy and chaos and the sort of the muddiness of everyday life as it, as it actually is lived, I suppose. Very thorough answer <laughs> to that question. Um, I, I think the comparison is uh, is kind of not fair. They're, they're two very different books, and yeah. I think sometimes when when we talk about dystopia as a as a, a genre, we have certain expectations. So mm. most dystopian fiction fits in to that those expectations. A Clockwork Orange, for example, yeah. The Handmaid's Tale. For example, 1985. You know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this book sort of predates the blueprint for that type mm. of dystopian fiction. The blueprint being 1984, most probably. Um, and I, I think this is this is closer to those um, those novels like Brave New World that sort of blend dystopia with utopia. You know, the, there's no, there's no sort of overarching rebellion really in in it, where where there is in in pretty much every post, 1984, uh, dystopia. It's sort of more a, a study of what human beings would do in this situation than a than a, a sort of driving thrilling plot, which you get in certainly a Clockwork Orange. And in something like The Handmaid's Tale, um, the aerodrome, it, it's challenging the reader to, to meet it halfway. Whereas I think you can read certainly a lot of dystopian fiction, and this is not a, a sort of negative criticism, but you can read a lot of dystopian fiction as a thriller or as a, as a sort of plot-driven, character-driven act of rebellion or you know warning about the future whereas the aerodrome it's kind of a warning but <laughs> it's hard to know what it's warning is against, it isn't it? really <laughs> a warning I, I don't know so you know the comparison with other dystopian fiction is kind of unfair um i i think the aerodrome is its own thing and dystopian certainly but not not a, a work of dystopian fiction, yeah. in, in quotation marks. <laughs> um, speaking about the, the aerodrome's legacy, how do you think the aerodrome is viewed now, today? I mean, the book is still in print. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's available. Uh, and do you see Warner's influence in any other writers working today? Well, as for how it's viewed, I would, I would be interested to know. If people listen to the podcast and they are fans of, of Warner, they should tweet us. <laughs> because it is still, you still see it in Waterstones, it's still around, but it it's, doesn't get much airtime in the collective consciousness, doesn't it? You don't get a lot of people referencing. It's very Warner-esque, it's very Aerodrome-esque. I think that's possibly because, as you say, it's, it's a muddy, complex, ambiguous novel that... Um, that certainly has a, a tremendous force, but what that force is, is difficult to put your finger on. So in terms of influence, although I don't know if it's a direct influence, um, 
or whether it is just working in a very similar vein. John Lanchester uh, is a writer who's currently working in a similar kind of symbolic, slightly allegorical vein, and his book, The Wall, um, very much reminds me of the aerodrome in that, again, it's set in England, it's a dystopia. Um, it's not so much kind of merry England, it's a kind of slightly post-apocalyptic England in which the country is surrounded by a wall and... Uh, because of global warming, the sea levels have risen, and so everything outside of the country of Britain appears to be underwater, and occasionally uh, boats full of refugees come in, and, and the job of the people on the wall is to keep the refugees from getting over the wall. And if the, any refugee gets over the wall, the whole of the squadron gets thrown out onto a ship to become refugees themselves. Um, and as in the aerodrome, it's a kind of little microcosm for, for bigger issues um, and it doesn't play out necessarily in the way that you might think either. I think it's a bit more kind of um, a bit more action driven but certainly Lanchester is working in that tradition of, of symbolism where everything isn't quite as simple as you think and characters reveal, you know, they pull the mask off halfway through and everything changes and things like that. In terms of the legacy of the aerodrome it's very fashionable at universities now to have courses on on the dystopian you never see the aerodrome on those reading lists mm. um and i think it would be beneficial to add to those reading lists because it, it increases the scope of dystopia um to something that do, that doesn't fit with the the academic model of dystopia yeah certainly when i when i studied it at university it was alongside um well, a good example, actually, because you, you mentioned Handmaid's Tale. There was another book that came out in the 30s, Catherine Burdekin's Swastika Night, um, which is a very straight-down-the-line dystopia, which would fit perfectly into, and did fit perfectly into, uh, a university course where it's kind of... It's uh, a future England where Hitler has won, um, and it's about 100 years in the future, and women have become kind of enslaved as second-class subjects, and England has become ruled by a warrior class of men. It's so, so similar to Handmaid's Tale that it's, it's uncanny, really. Um, and so it's, that's a book that's stuck with me in terms of its message, but in terms of the actual action of it, I, I don't remember much of it because it is, like, it's, it's exactly what you expect when you say dystopia. Um, whereas this book is, is more complex than that. It throws the whole idea of dystopias into, because it is undeniably one. Um, but it breaks a lot of generic boundaries. And, and perhaps, I don't know, if, if future generations are being brought up in universities with certain expectations of dystopias, it, it might help to break those a bit so that we get more interesting dystopias in the future as well, because sometimes they do fall into a pattern a bit, the contemporary ones. OK, one final question, and it's the, the question that we ask everybody on the, the 99 Novels uh, podcast. If you could add a hundredth novel to Burgess's list, what would it be and why? Right. Well, I'm going to throw you a curveball on this one because um, Anthony Burgess was a big supporter behind the scenes of unknown authors, which you would know if you read my The Experimentalists. It came out two years ago with Bloomsbury Books in good old book, all good bookshops. Um, <laughs> and uh, some writers like Angela Carter, he was supporting before she'd even been published. It was thanks to, thanks to him that she got into into press and then went on to become the, the huge figure that she was. Um, so I, in my work at the Manchester Review of Books, we get sent a lot of books, and there is a book called The Death of H.L. Hicks by H.L. Hicks, which got sent to us in an anonymous package. So I don't know who the writer is. If you look on Amazon, there is a very conspicuous picture of the author that is clearly stock 
like a stock photo if you just googled middle-aged white author <laughs> that would be the one that came up and his bio in the in, is clearly also made up um it's a fascinating book that i think burgess would have loved it's so it's unheard of self-published from what i can see and the challenge of finding it is a big challenge then when you find it the whole first chapter is absolutely insufferable it's sort of meta narratives um to, you know have to read the footnotes and flick back and forth and all this sort of stuff that really puts you off but after you've got past that horrible first chapter it's just a masterpiece study of sort of death and and mercy it's the character hl hicks is an academic who's on his own and is dying and is cared for uh, by a nurse and it's just phenomenal heartbreaking um insightful it it deals with death in a way that i've never uh, read but in a, in a way that seems honest and genuine um and so, yeah, I'm afraid that doesn't have much to do with Warner, and it's also way outside the chronology of 99 novels, but I thought I'd do, do what Burgess would have done and celebrate sort of a little unknown writer. Yeah, we don't, we don't care that it's outside the chronology. <laughs> we, we, we want book suggestions. That's, that's the, the uh, reason for that question. Um, that's a really fascinating choice. I, I will look that up. Um, but Joe, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thank so you. Thanks. Yeah, I had good fun. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. The Experimentalists by Joseph Darlington is published by Bloomsbury and available at all good bookshops. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.